Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm fabulously delighted. My wife always tells me that I'm always delighted, so I'm going to be fabulously delighted today to have Marcus Wrench. Marcus is a passionate advocate for the customer. His content is always painfully on point. It's excruciating how accurate his uh, understanding is of how we give away the opportunities for the customer to buy from us. And he's produced some really interesting content, which I follow on a regular basis. And what I'm going to explore with him today is really what's wrong with the approach that people take in sales that drives poor customer experience that results in churn rates of you know, anything up to 12, 15, 20%. A real business couldn't do that. So we're going to explore how the correction in the market is likely to affect all of us because it's not just the SaaS companies that are going to be badly affected because most of us use SaaS technologies. The average bank has eight to 900 apps. And we're going to look at compensation because compensation drives behavior. Again, what does it do to drive you away from the customer? And what can you do to correct that? Marcus, welcome. Thanks for inviting me, Marcus. Would you give us 60 to 90 seconds on your history and how you came to this point? Yeah, my name is Marcus. I'm a customer success consultant and advocate I'm running my own business. What I did in the past two years is to come up with my very own uh, business model that really uh, puts customer success to the center of the business, which I call customer well-led growth. So it's the fundamental opposite of how most SaaS or tech companies operate these days. <laughs> because honestly, what they do is they tackle growth for the sake of it. And they don't view growth and revenue as the consequence of serving their customers in the best way possible. And that's already the, the fundamental problem that we are, yeah, that we see today fueled by the insane amount of venture capital that's floating around the world. Yeah, and now in the past two months, things have obviously changed and we will see yeah, what the future holds up for these companies and also for us customers. So in terms of the foundations that have been created by this rapid charge for growth at any cost, fueled by uh, the, the cheap or, you know, and plentiful money. What's that done to create the wrong kind of foundations for these businesses? Where, where are they exposed now that private equity is asking them to make profit? Yeah, there are different routes for that problem. So for one thing, I think what, what, what drives that behavior is our current zeitgeist um, of instant gratification. So it feels like no one wants to build something sustainable anymore. And you, you can see it all over the web. I mean, there are probably millions of blog posts that claim to, to show you how to double your sales in 30 days or something or crap like this. But there are no or almost no blog posts or ebooks or whatever telling you how to build a sustainable business. So it's, it's, it's really something that's, yeah, that, that's, that's deeply rooted in today's society. Again, as I look back, I'm trying to understand the root causes of this. And I think it stretches back 300 years into the Industrial Revolution and the type of organizations that are very competitive. If they coexist, they do so reluctantly. They collaborate at arm's length. Everything's done contractually, lawyers involved. You never give your partners your good stuff. And with, with regards to the customer, there this inconvenience at the end of a long chain of abuse, because every time you get thrown over the fence from marketing to SDRs, SDRs to AEs, AEs to uh, onboarding, onboarding to the full-time CS, back into marketing, and every time there's friction. And the, the customer doesn't feel safe. For me, the big drive is buyer safety. And so I'm curious, what are you trying to create in terms of the promise? What, what's the million-dollar promise we believe that every customer deserves? How do you finish that sentence? So what we 
need to recognize all the time is that our customers are human, be human beings. So what you really want from us, the value they're most craving for, it's personal. So they may measure it by some metrics like how many sales you've made or how much growth you've created, how much feedback you got for your product, stuff like this. But what really matters to the people behind is how it connects with the personal value and goals. So does it help me to get promoted? Does it help me to, to be safe in the company? Does it help me to sleep better at night? That's what we ultimately need to understand. So every single company in the world, basically, they are not selling a product. They are not selling outcomes that are measured with numerical numbers, but they're selling personal value, and personal outcomes. And, and companies in B2C, they fully understand what, what customers really want. So if you look at, I know, Apple or Red Bull or whatever company, they always target the human outcome. And in B2B, it, it needs to become the same because I don't know who said it. Um, I think I saw it on LinkedIn, but someone said that in B2B, you're selling to humans that happen to be at work. Yeah. They're the same humans that go to the movies, buy a new car, or et cetera, et cetera. It's the same people at a different place. So we really need to appeal to the, to the human part of sales and really sell personal value to our customers. So one of the things pointing back to that industrial age model is the division between all the different stages. Like, you know, they're, they're going through a factory process. And that's somewhat dehumanizing on both sides. It may be efficient. But my question is, how effective is it if you want to build sustainable lifetime customer relationships? So the key issue is, are you really trying to do that? Or are you just simply racing for valuation? And the question, therefore, is what is the job you're trying to get done? Yeah, so now, now things have obviously changed in the past few months. And we need to deliver the most value possible to our customers because that's the only way to survive. So as I've said before, customers are now carefully evaluating the value they get out of our products or services. And they will scrap everything that's, yeah, that doesn't deliver up to their expectations. Sorry, are, are there specific moments where they uh, make those decisions? Y yes. I mean, now they will make these decisions earlier than before. So where you had maybe six months before to prove the value of the product or service, it may be now two or three months or something like this. I, I don't have any numbers about, but I'm certain that the, that, the, that, the, that the time to value customers are expecting is yeah rapidly declining and you need to deliver more faster. And that's a big problem for many companies because they are not used to do it and they don't have the organization or even the mindset to successfully um, manage that switch. Well, they're also struggling, if we're being perfectly honest, with the lack of resource because you know they've lost a lot of people and they're finding it very hard to recruit. So the demands from the customer haven't changed, but now their resources are more stretched. So I'm questioning how much more pressure the CS function is feeling given this shift because keeping the customer is where the profit is. Yeah, of course, it's a big problem. And then customer success managers, yeah, the, the pressure on, on their performance will uh, obviously increase. I'm talking to a lot of customer success managers and leaders, obviously. And one thing or one, one, one pattern that I see over and over is that most of them, they don't know whether the customers are actually successful. Why? Because they are following an inside-out approach and they track internal metrics, but they barely talk to customers and ask the customers, did you achieve your goal with the help of our product? But that's the important thing because that's, that's why customers buy the product. I mean, they don't pay you because it's such an honor to use your product, of course. That makes no sense. This inside-out point of view is one of the biggest problems, and it's something that you really can change fast. So I really fear that many, many companies, they are doomed today because they really like lack of everything to really complete this transition. 
when you consider how much it costs to acquire a customer, and if you're letting even 12% walk out the door, that's probably what? In three years, you've got to replace half your customer base. Now, when you look at the hidden costs, the actual cost, but also the hidden cost of going cold into a market, instead of selling warm or hot, the conversion rate on a warm introduction versus going in cold is about three and 3.4 times higher than going in cold. Going in hot, i.e. being referred by someone who's trusted by both sides, there's typically an eight to nine in 10 conversion rate at that rate. And you're talking about, so you're talking about maybe eight by eight. So 64 to 81% conversion rates versus three to 5%. So we're spending all this effort at the front end. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, the, the data is all here. You, you can... You can easily um, compare how, how profitable new, new acquisitions are compared to renewals, expansions, and upsells. It's, it's all there. You can also, as you said, check out um, different conversion rates. But the problem is that that's what I've meant before. People are so blinded that they don't dive into the data. They don't think about it. And they, most importantly, they don't act about it. I mean, this data is available for years. It's not, not, not a new development. I mean, now it will become even even worse because conversion rates will will continue to deteriorate. I, I spoke to a CEO last year before the bubble burst, and I asked her what her profit objectives were, and her, her response was, "I don't give a fuck about profit." It didn't surprise me, but it did disappoint me because it tells me that what you're doing is you're building a house of cards or a house on stilts, and it's not suited to the terrain with what's coming. For any of you who are in any doubt, if you thought the last two years were hard, buckle up. We're heading into the worst recession that we have ever had. And this is, I think this is my fifth because I'm very old. And we're seeing bond markets and equity markets tank at the same time. It doesn't look like crypto is going to be that much of a haven. And you're looking at the energy spikes that are a byproduct of stuff that happened months ago because smart traders could see ahead that stuff was happening. And we're paying the price. We've got the worst recession in history, interest rate rises, inflation, and mass redundancies. And we look at the SaaS companies who, to a large extent, have been selling to each other, now laying lots of people off. What are the ripple effects? For organizations that have got maybe eight or 900 apps like banks with hundreds of vendors. Yeah, of course, that will be bad for customers. I mean, some companies will, will, yeah, they will be in deep trouble of, of yeah, keeping their operations up, up and running. It's obvious. So also from the customer side, you, you need to be more careful and, and, and think about who you're buying from. But the problem is, of course, you, you don't have access to most of the company data. So you are not aware that like of these eight or 900 apps that 90% of the vendors are not profitable and may go out of business soon. So but as I said, I mean, it's the hardest recession that will ever hit us. There's no doubt. I mean, but it's, yeah, it's, it's our own fault. We've created also or that, that fake economy. There's no other word to describe it appropriately. So well, there I... is so much money in the market circulating. I don't know the exact numbers, but read some years ago that the, the relation uh, between the money supply and um, the value of all goods and services was like 30 to 1. So now it's probably 50 to 1. I mean, there is so much money, but there is no backing of it. So all this, as you've said, all that the, the bonds and, and, and the stocks, et cetera, et cetera, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's built, it's a, a house of cards, you could say. It, it is. Will, will crumble down. So. Well, Without wanting to get political, what, what this is, is the extreme end of capitalism catching up with itself, because growth at any cost, win at any price, no matter who is hurt along the way, in the short-term selfish game, game it never lasts. And it, it's not like 
we haven't had examples of this in the past. The tulip bubble, the South Sea bubble, the Dutch uh, gilder, the pound sterling. We've seen these cycles happen time and time again. If only we look back far enough outside our own lifetimes, because these things happen in cycles. And we're seeing these cycles coinciding with downward cycle on our end. Uh, At the same time, there's a huge upward cycle from emerging markets, particularly China. You've got to watch out for other economies that people probably aren't paying attention to, like Nigeria, the South American economies. Other uh, Southeast Asian economies are really starting to motor. And there's a lot of latent talent in these countries. And they're bypassing technologically. So we better shape up. Yeah, the problem is (laughs) how are we going to do it? And uh, yeah, the problem is that we obviously don't learn from our mistakes. So the, the the only way to drive people's behavior is, yeah, when they are in the middle of the storm. Right, but let's pretend we're not quite as stupid as a species as as we appear to be uh, on the basis of this conversation. What do you believe we should be doing in terms, let's start with, begin with the customer first. So let's start about thinking as the customer. How do we do that? Yeah, thinking as the customer, I mean, it certainly depends on the customer behavior. So I'm like a guy, um, I say I always say if if the yeah if everybody would uh, consume like me, no no um, companies like Amazon could ever exist. So because I'm a buyer who only purchases stuff if I really need it. So simply because I, I really hate to buy new stuff, I mean, then my, my house is completely stuffed with useless things, and I really hate it. <laughs> so, but there are so many people in the world that yeah. They, they, they need to, to buy stuff so, and, and do things. So we, we need to, as a customer, we need to, yeah, let's say we need to downsize and, and, and really go back to, to things that make sense. Buy only things or mostly things we really need. So it, you don't need to buy a new phone every year. I mean, it's completely bullshit. And 20 years ago, no one did it. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I saw an advert just to, bring this into stark reality. Recycling one smartphone saves 68.2 kilograms of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Who knew? I mean, that's a shitload of carbon dioxide for uh, satisfying your whim to have a slightly brighter screen. Yeah, but people don't care about it. They obviously feel like they need to have the newest. Okay, but the the, the question... The question was, let's pretend we're not quite so stupid. (laughs) Okay, so first of all, focus on what you really need and don't focus on the uh, the frivolous. Okay, what else uh, are you seeing customers or you expecting customers to change in their behavior? I don't see any alternative, to be honest, (laughs) to change our buyer behavior. That's that's the most important thing. I mean, we can talk about carbon dioxide emissions um, night and day. But yeah, it, it's all that the, the consumption of world that is the big problem. I mean, here in Europe, you, you know it as, as well as I. So the stuff we are purchasing mostly comes from China and they, they, they are shipped over with, with huge uh, freighters. I read somewhere, I don't know if it's true, but um, it said like that the 20 um, largest container ships in the world um, create as much emissions as all the cars in the world. Not, not sure if it's true. But I'm yeah, it, I wouldn't be surprised actually, because I mean these container ships they, they have a load of like I don't know twenty k containers, they are huge and they travel like three weeks from Shanghai to to Rotterdam or wherever they, they are headed to, and that's that's the insane thing. I mean, do you, do we really need all that stuff that comes from from a distance of I don't know ten k kilometers? Okay. So if we think as the organization that needs to serve the customer, what needs to change or what, what does the ideal frictionless organization look like? How do they behave? How do they think? What's their culture? Yeah, the frictionless 
organization puts the customer the needs first. So they are not trying to sell product or service to the customer they know they don't need. But that's what's what's happening now. Because these companies, they want to grow and they want to create revenue. So they don't care if customers buy now and three months later, they discover that the product doesn't fit their needs. They really, really don't care. But as I've said before, with all the venture capital, they actually can do it. I mean, if they would be bootstrapped, they couldn't afford it because the customer acquisition costs would not be repaid after three months. That's that's the simple truth. And now as, the, as all, the, the, all this insane amount of money goes away, we will see who is really who really puts the customer front and center of the business and who is just a pretender that says we are customer-centric on the website. But they are actually self-centric. Well, I, I interviewed Red Stuffstrom and he trains introverts. And one thing that really struck me was that he said that uh, leading questions uh, like the police cackling a crowd for introverts. And I thought that was really quite profound because I know when you've got a salesperson that's really trying to put you on the rails and put you under pressure, and you might just acquiesce to make the pressure go away, but you're instantly a flight risk. And so I'm curious how much uh, of that turn, uh, that churn is created explicitly because salespeople are selling to the wrong people. Yeah, depending on the company, it's a huge amount. It's 50, 60% sometimes. Okay. So in terms of a solution to that, how much of that is down to bad list building and bad targeting? And then that has the ripple effect downstream, which the you poor guys in CS end up picking up the pieces from. Yeah, that the problem actually runs deep. It really starts at the top. So there are investors and they have short-term growth goals. So they pressure the CEOs of these companies into the same goals. They pressure the sales leaders into the same goals. And they, of course, pass it on to their SDRs. So that everybody is incentivized on growth, pure, pure raw growth, no matter how it, how it happens. So the quality really doesn't matter. So everybody tries to, to achieve that goal and meet the, this quota. So it's, it's only natural that they don't really care about the quality and only go for the quantity. And that's, that's what we see today. So there are, it's, it's, it's not because you would know who are, or you couldn't um, discover who is a great fit for the product in the sales process or even earlier from the marketing point of view. But the incentives drive the behavior. And that's the problem. And these incentives are set at the top and create this ripple effect you've set um, down, right down to the bottom. Now, this is really interesting because it uh, plays directly to the work of people like Clay Christensen and Bob Master around jobs to be done. And Corporate Visions had some really interesting insight on this as well. They suggest going to the SEC website, the EDGAR section. EDGAR is the electronic data, can't remember what it is. But that's where public companies list their accounts. And if you look at Form 10Q and 10K, that tells you generally how they spend on a quarterly and annual basis and what they spend it on, and with whom. And then, I think it's at Form 100F, I may have got it wrong, but Form 100F looks at executive compensation. Now, the long-term and short-term incentives are listed there. So if sustainability accounts for 20% of executive pay, you can count on people throughout the rest of the organization having KPIs around sustainability. Um, but if it's just about growth, they'll focus on growth. So useful tip, especially if you're selling into a market where you can't get the information on a specific account, look at a similar size publicly held company, if there is one, and look at their um, executive compensation, because it might give you clues. So help me understand this. You've got the executive compensation being driven by the shareholders. You've got the leaders then driving that at a management level, 
What do we need to do at a management level to educate them that if they put the customer at the front and center of everything they do, they're more likely to achieve their KPIs, their OKRs, their MBOs? Yes, absolutely. But as I've said, we need to, the change needs to start at the top. We need to change how leaders or investors think. So if they are not in for the long game, if the long game is serving your customers in the best way possible, it will create exactly the wrong type of culture, the toxic culture with costs at all growth. No, right. all costs, sorry. <laughs> well, the, the, the tide, I think, is changing. As of tail end of May uh, 22, Sequoia released a report saying that they're not going to invest unless they can see profit. So cash collection is more important, to, or it's important for the first time for many of these businesses and for many of these managers and leaders. And I think the danger with just doing it top down is it feels like yet another forced imposition. And that's the antithesis of what we really need, which is everybody to be rowing in the same direction and uh, working towards those customer outcomes. Because the customer does not buy your product. They rent it. And each time Every day, they rent it a little micro hire. There's a, another little rental. And if the experience doesn't match the outcome that's required, then they start to think about replacing you. They fire you. And in this day and age, it's very easy to get hold of all of that information. So again, I'm curious, how do you make, how do you make sure that the customer success people are maintaining the right level of communication, uh, the frequency, the cadence, the, um, the quality. Um, so it's not just being reactive. Yeah, it's, it's really everything is connected in, in this situation. So the, the goals that are set at the leadership level drive the behavior of everybody in the company, even the customer success teams. So what I continuously sees customer success teams where you would think the main goal is to make customers successful. But the main goal is actually to be as cost efficient as possible. Even when that means you, you, you take the churn risk and you won't be able to grow these customers. So you wouldn't believe how many customer success managers have never ever talked to a customer so the customer is only a, a data entry, basically, or someone you send emails to, or someone you, you throw stuff at. But there is so often no discovery. The cube, the infamous QBRs, they're all about the company, if customers even participate. And in the end, that's something I always ask. And nine out of 10 companies, they really don't know whether the customers are successful. I ask every CSM and every CS leader, do you know whether a customer is successful and what exactly do they get out of the product? And they really don't know. They just assume that their customers are successful because the internal metrics suggest they are. But that's not the same. That's, that's, that's guessing. And so what are the internal metrics that they're being beguiled by? Yeah, the most, most prominent ones are net promoter scores, health scores, user activity, customer satisfaction scores, and all, all this stuff. But the thing is, these numbers are often highly inaccurate. So um, you get customers that give you really high scores, but they churn the next month after. And it, it really it happens all the time. Regarding health scores, it's, it's, it's called the watermelon effect. So it, because the customers are green on the outside, but red and, and red on the inside. So you think everything is fine with that customer, but it's actually not. And it's not because you never talk to these customers and you never get you never get to know any context. So you see a customer, okay, they are using the product literally night and day. But what you don't know is whether their efforts are successful unless you ask these customers, you talk to these customers. Now, that's interesting. I mean... I didn't realize that there would be CSs that don't speak to the customer. What I have seen with uh, CS quite often is they're almost apologetic. They're very sensitive 
to not upsetting you. But it doesn't really feel like you're in a safe pair of hands very often. I think with Apple, first line isn't too bad. But when they escalate you two, three levels, there you start to feel really safe when there's something horribly wrong with your PC. And I think we what what I'm certainly what I'm looking for is that level of safety when I'm talking to a vendor, and I want them to be a partner. And uh, what I'm really depressed about is it sounds like the same disease uh, that CS has is what goes on in the channel because your average channel manager just phones up and says, "Marcus, what you got for me this month? Oh, nothing. Okay, great. Speak to you next month then." I mean, at least they pick up the phone, but I suspect most of them do it via email now because so many of them have gone for this land grab of trying to get lots of partners instead of getting some effective ones. One thing I'd like to add is um, why this behavior in customer success exists. And I came to the conclusion that the real problem is it's um, the vendors who create customer success software because the customer success managers Uh are building their their organization and strategy and their approaches and processes, they really build it on how, how the, the, the software vendors perceive customer success. And the way they do that is it, every, every single, almost every single customer success tool in the world is built from the inside out view and not from the customer's point of view. But that's what really matters. Customer success starts with the customer. So you have the customer goal and you know where the customer is now. And as a customer success manager, it's your job to bridge the gap between. But that's not what's what's going to happen. You see the same thing in CRM because the first thing is your manager beats the drum about prospecting and pipeline. So you put anything you can into the CRM. And even if it's like a you know, fart in a hurricane, Uh, chance of winning you put it in because you need to look like you're occupied and busy then you keep it in because you need to keep your mortgage paid and once it's in the first question that you get asked is expected close date so your emphasis goes from the top of the funnel to the bottom of the funnel and none of the middle so this is why you see a massive problem with uh, sales pipelines bloating in the middle like they're constipated um, and you know, lots of stuff gets stuck and it comes back down to the issues that Marcus was talking about earlier, which is the leadership uh, compensation and uh, exit objectives driving the behavior of the management layer, which drives the uh, outbound and marketing activity, which is really about focused on volume, not quality. And so then CS ends up picking up the pieces So how often do you see this structural tension where finance is then blaming CS for letting customers uh, walk out the back door? Yeah, it happens quite frequently. So I've seen companies that have like 30% churn and they blame it all on customer success. But I haven't seen a customer success team that bad (laughs) that would be responsible for such high churn. No, the reason is, they are constantly bringing on bad fit customers because, yeah, as I've uh, said before, it's it's really all quantity driven. So they say, okay, our total addressable market is everybody, <laughs> and that's that's how we are going to acquire our customers. Is there any software that is built from the customer out? Yeah, I mean there are, are software tools that, that that include the customers, so that's a, a start. But if I would build a customer success software, I would build it completely different. So How it, would you build it? It would literally be a, a mix of different tools. So one, one important thing is if I'm a customer success manager, I want to understand who is my customer. So I need to segment customers, but I need to segment, segment them based on things that matter. And that's, that is customer success. It's not how many employees work there, how much revenue they create. What you need to segment your customers is how far they got on the on the uh, the success ladder, you could say. So, what what's the job they're trying to get done? What progress are they making, and what are their struggling moments? Exactly. 
Got because it. that's customer success. As I said before, your job is to take customers from A to B. You you help customers to bridge the gap with the services you provide. So how you educate customers, how you um, consult customers, how you give them trainings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that that's the important part. Because right. as we said before, customer value is the main driver of company success. So really need to focus on customer value. And ideally, we would build the whole organization, everything we are doing, based on the targeted outcome for the customer. But obviously, what most companies do is they create the product and want to sell it. Yeah. Sell it, produce it, and they will come. Okay. So this is really very interesting. So are you suggesting... Because I'm hearing this a lot from SDRs and AEs that they want to be able to build their own personal stack of technology that they find works for them. And I think that's a really sensible idea, but it does require tech IT to let go of control and for managers to understand what the job is that the salesperson is trying to get done. Are you suggesting something similar? within the CS environment? So for, for me, as, as I also said before, to me, customer success is a company-wide mindset and needs to become a company-wide operating system. So the ideal customer success tool to me is where all customer data is combined. So you see everything from the first contact to support tickets to feature requests to, of course, revenue and, and, and cost supply, everything. So you have real customer profiles and you really understand everything about the customer. Who is the customer? What are they doing? Why, are the behavior, why is the behavior this or that way? So that's really important. But now everybody sits in their own data silo. So you have the product team that has data, with the marketing team that has data, sales, customer success, customer support, and they are not interacting in most companies. So you never have the, the whole context of the customer. When should the CS come in? Sorry to interrupt, but you, you just touched on something really critical here. Because I, I fundamentally believe that CS is kept brought in way too late. You guys are like mushrooms. You're kept in the dark and in the ship. And then somehow you're meant to execute. Because I fundamentally believe that CS, certainly for complex deals, should be brought in probably the second meeting maybe third, at the very latest, because you have to be able to make a judgment call. Can we even deliver on this? Yeah, absolutely. If you bring, I mean, it's obvious that no one knows the customers better than customer success managers because they are working with the customers every day. So there is no one who would be better qualified to, um, yeah, to qualify new prospects, whether they are a good fit or not, based on actual experience. And at the same time, as they obviously also know that or should know the product the best, the best suited person in the company to um, respond to customer questions and talk talk about solutions. So if the customer asks, yeah, how, how could, do you think we could solve this problem? But the salesperson may not have the the, the knowledge, the in depth knowledge um, to properly um, respond to this question. But the customer success manager who has worked with 10, 20, 100 customers like this before, they know what they should, they should know and be able to answer the questions. So for one thing, you can reduce churn because you can yeah, create what I like to call customer success qualified leads or opportunities. And at the same time, you can make an impression on the customer because if you can already discuss um, possible solutions for the customers, they will say, hey, okay, they know they know what they're talking about. So that may be the right the right vendor for us. Because the customers are managers, they understand what's going on and they know what we need, and that greatly raises the odds um, to succeed. Okay. So this then raises a really int- two interesting questions. So first one is looking at the route to leadership. I think there are two other roles that ultimately have incredible reach and breadth that a direct sales or a CFO won't necessarily have. 
and that's the CX, uh, sorry, the, um, the head of data analytics. The data person should have real insight if they understand how to get the small into the small data and the human side, not just the efficiency metrics. I think the other piece is this will be a route to the CEO for the head of data analytics, the head of channel or strategic alliances and ecosystems, and I think CS. If you don't have all three of those on your board or a plan to build those functions into your leadership structure, I think you're going to be at a massive disadvantage because those three need to coordinate and work together. Yeah, so the funny thing, if we're talking about B2B, customer success is yeah, the core of your business by design because the reason why your business exists is to make customers more successful, at least if you are selling software. I mean, if you're, if you're selling um, office furniture, things are probably different. So there's hardly um, a yeah, connection between <laughs> the, the furniture and, and customer success. But no matter if, if you are a, a software vendor, a consultant, a marketing agency, or whatever, your, your business is making customers more successful. And if you are the CEO of that company, it puts you in charge of customer success, whether you're aware of it or not. But it's the simple truth. If, you, if your business exists to make customers more successful and you're the CEO, it's your responsibility. Of course, that doesn't mean that you need to get involved with executing customer success on a daily basis. But you, what you need to do as a CEO is to create alignment on customer success um, throughout the whole company. So it, it, that can't happen. That can't happen bottom up because uh, these, these teams are naturally divided. The way they all have operated, the way they've operated in the past. This is interesting because this starts to feed into how do you create the communication strategy to be able to start moving the organization away from the way we've done it for the last 30, 40 years to what we have to do if we're going to survive through this recession. Because I, I don't believe the technology stack has become so complex and so sophisticated. I don't believe that vendors are going to be able to find it very easy to sell direct they're going to have to go through partners because the partners are intimate they've got depth and breadth or they should have depth and breadth within the organization if they're trusted they've probably been with them for quite some time so they know all the ins and outs they know the politics they know the the true organizational structure and the political factions and we know from the data that it looks like 70 percent higher average order value from partner-assisted deals than deals that are done direct. So I think there's going to be a shift because we want to make more profit. Um, and I think what we should be doing is trying to align ourselves with the investor's desire for a solid exit. Because investors, actually, what they're really interested, the job they're interested in, is how do we raise the next fund? What do we have to do to get investors to keep their money in the fund and renew, and to bring their friends. So if we, if we think of the investor as the customer, if we're trying to solve this problem, how do we align and sell them on getting this right and seeing how it serves their selfish self-interest if they can only be patient? Because literally, for most of these people, it's probably six to nine months of patience to get it right. So what do we have to do to sell that message? Yeah, we will also see a yeah, big consolidation um, in the venture capital space. I mean, there are now like 5K companies I've read somewhere in venture capital. Yeah. So and yeah, those who were really in for the gambles <laughs> and they are no longer viable, yeah, they will cease to exist, I expect. But for those, I mean, they already exist. There are, of course, also venture capital firms that really make sense, that really are in for the long game because they, they don't want to go fast in and out, but they want to, to get uh, yeah, constant value from their investments. They exist, but there are only a few of them, to be honest. So as a customer success manager, you basically have 
two customers. So you have your end customer who wants value and you have a company leadership and your investors who want revenue. And if you deliver on the customer value, you will create the revenue. So we really need to, as customer success managers, we really need to focus on creating creating revenue and value for the company leadership. So that's how we can prove the ROI. So there's often that famous question, what's the ROI of customer success? And if you say, okay, we have increased net promoter scores or stuff like this, who cares, honestly? But if you can say, okay, we have created 1K new clients from referrals, we've created 5 million new revenue from existing customers, and your leadership will listen to it. And when you get the buy-in from the leadership and the investors, they say, okay, hey, this, that things works, and it works faster, actually, because that's exactly what it does. So the, the typical SaaS company, they are all focused on the sales funnel. But the sales funnel will uh, run dry as soon as you stop feeding it. But with customer success, you can actually create what's called the growth helix. Let's say you start with one customer and you grow this customer. The customer can expand and, and, and buy new products and, and tiers as many as you're offering. And at the same time, the customer can also bring on an infinite number of, of referrals. So, so do you have a that effect? It spins even faster and faster. So do you have a process that you teach people within CS for asking for those referrals? And when they get them, do they follow them up themselves or do they pass them on to sales? Yeah, so that, that's something that uh, what I've mentioned before. The, the, if you never talk to customers... It feels weird if you suddenly appear and, and ask them for referrals. That will that won't work. But if you have built a relationship with the customer and became really a trusted advisor, and you also have the results for the customer that that prove how your relationship have, have created value for the customer, it's it's not weird at all to ask about them, them to ask them about giving referrals. Because why would they would they oppose to if they, if you know okay. Since we're working with, with that guy or gal, we've doubled our sales or something like this. So, but it's all really about results and relationship. It, it, that's that's not not something in tech or SaaS that that's that works everywhere, of course. As long as customers are just a data entry or a, a virtual person in our CRM or, or customer success tool, it's obviously very difficult. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay. So we've come more or less to the top of the hour. I'm very curious because this has been enlightening and I've picked up some very useful insights. Do you have some form of graphic around this growth helix? I haven't created one, but there exists someone on, on, on the Gainsight uh, website, I think. Gainsight. Gainsight. Okay. Tell me this, you've got a golden ticket and you can go back any point in time and whisper in the ear of your idiot younger self. What one bit of advice and at what moment in time would you have uh, given that advice? Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, yeah, probably before I started in the corporate world, actually, because I've always felt yeah, very limited. Um, in my possibilities, because I've I've always been a guy who, who sees that the next step before other people does, right. before other people do. So I'm really not 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 someone that that fits well with a company that tries to keep the status quo. I found out the hard way, but if I'm thinking back, I never was, so I never fitted in. So now it's exactly where I should always have been. I'm just reminded of that wonderful Apple advert that Jobs posted when he first came back to apple the unreasonable ones and i can picture it now people sledgehammering through the gray okay are there any good books any great podcasts any good bits of content out there obviously for those of you who have been listening please follow marcus's content it's always on point but what would you recommend what do you read what's inspiring you 
Honestly, I don't read that much. So, I mean, I do read much, but uh, I really want to, to understand how we've came to the point where we are now, especially in customer success. How all this, there are so many things um, that are, make no sense to me in customer success. So, the met, as I said before, the metrics, the processes, the approaches, really most things. And I really want to, wanted to understand how these things work out and why companies are following these approaches that make actually no sense. But honestly, as I'm really going a completely in a completely different direction, there's not so much content that really actually helps me build um, yeah, or grow my own perspective. So it's really, I don't know how, how exactly I could describe it. It's, the status quo fuels um, my controversial views, you could say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I get that, actually, um, because I'm very similar, uh, which has made me unemployable and fireproof. And it's really interesting being on the inside again of someone else's company because you start to realize just how much freedom you have when you have your own business. But I'm finding the constraint very helpful as well. So I don't think I would survive in a corporate, but in you know, small and mid-market, um, where it's still a little bit wild west. <laughs> okay. How can people get hold of you? Oh, yeah, the easiest way is to connect or follow me on LinkedIn. I mean, I'm highly active. I'm yeah, posting at least one time a day. Most most days I post two or even three times. Yeah, I like to create uh, content about customers because I really like to talk about it. And yeah, I'm not 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 shy to to share my controversial views. That yeah, that does not resonate as much as I, I yeah would like it to be. But it's actually growing. So yeah, the the most recent developments in the world yeah this actually fueled um, yeah, my, my take on customer success and my take on business and more and more people are going to listen. So do you have, I know that you've got this wonderful customer value-led growth PDF. Would you mind if we make this available to uh, people who've listened? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. So if any of you are interested in getting Marx's PDF, it's a really comprehensive document about how to adapt to the current changes in the market. Strongly recommend it. So, Marcus, uh, contact details? Yeah, um, you can contact me on the Marcus.ranch uh, at Remarkable um, AT. That's my website. But the easiest way is actually to connect and, and, and reach out to me on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Marcus Wrench, thank you. Thanks for inviting me, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you're the owner or CEO of a tech company with the goal of generating annual recurring revenues in excess of £20 million, then get in touch because right now I'm helping companies just like yours achieve genuine, sustainable, rapid growth that's sustainable, highly engaged, with highly engaged employees and highly productive employees and clients who stick with you year after year. So if you're up for a brief conversation, I'm happy to share with you some of the ideas and strategies that can help you achieve the same. In the meantime, email me, marcus at laughs.com. Stay safe. Happy selling. Bye-bye.